0: Hello, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of the Hopeful Environmentalists, a podcast where we discuss hope in the climate space with amazing guest speakers. It's your host, Taylor Gannis, and today we have a guest speaker on from one of the organizations that I really look up to in the climate space for their ability to spread hope and accessible resources. We talk about a bunch of things like having community and why that's so important, past events that they held at events like COP27 and New York Climate Week, and we'll also be talking about events they will be holding in COP28 and how you can get involved with them. Something I'm really excited that you guys will hear in this episode is also learning about seed biodiversity and why that's so important, which is something that was new to me, and I'm so happy that I learned about it. Our guest speaker is super cool because she actually made a documentary about this, which is so amazing, and I'm so excited to watch it, and it will be linked in the description in the podcast, um, so definitely check that out. Our guest speaker, Charlie Frisk, is a climate storyteller. She recently graduated with a Master's of Environmental Management from the Yale School of Environment and also holds a dual degree from the College of St. Benedict and St. John's University in Environmental Studies and Peace Studies. Currently, she works to bring hope and optimism into the climate movement in her role as the Director of Climate Action for Time for Better, a climate communications agency. She also works as a documentary filmmaker, working to creatively bridge natural and social sciences, which has found her in the middle of rural Danish farmlands and in polar bear zones of the Arctic Circle. So without further ado, I'd love to welcome Charlie Frist to the podcast.
1: Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to be on this podcast.
0: Yeah, so I, I know you do work with Time for Better, and I saw that Time for Better was really active during New York Climate Week last week. I think it was last week or <laughs> a week after hosting sign-making events and like the Earth Disco and other events. And I just wanted to know, like, why is creating these spaces for collaboration and community so important?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. I think that spaces for community and collaboration are really at the heart of the climate movement. We hear a lot about climate anxiety and eco-anxiety and how paralyzing these feel feelings can be. Um, and how isolating that people can be, feel navigating this really scary moment in history. Um, but this is a lifelong journey that people have to be involved with um, and continue the good work. So making sure that people feel like they're welcome, that they have a space, that they have a home is really important and definitely central to the role that we play as an organization. And yeah, Time for Better is a creative climate communications agency. We focus on digital media activations and also event activations. And during Climate Week, we really tried to show up on a multitude of different levels at the grassroots level and then also at um, higher levels as well. Um, But yeah, we had a beautiful sign making party. We had a bunch of really amazing climate activists come and start the morning before the March to end fossil fuels with a nice breakfast and free sign making materials and listening to music and just offering a space of joy. And yeah, later in the week, we were able to host the Earth Disco. And this was just a joyous gathering of over 500 different people from all different sectors of the climate movement, from climate scientists to business CEOs to indigenous activists to youth activists. And they were all dancing and celebrating the Earth. We had an um, indigenous DJ. We had the Earth herself, Hill of the Earth. Um, so, yeah, and I feel like everybody just came away with the uh, feeling that, yeah, we're all this together and that um, we need to be here for each other and celebrate the moments of joy that do exist in this movement
0: yeah there's so many many things there that you just said that like resonate and I was so jealous of the events and seeing all the community and everything I was like because I lived in New York all my life and I just moved to North Dakota which is so random but I was like why did I have to miss all this like really like literally I just moved here like a month ago so it was like I just missed it I know Uh (laughs) so next year I will definitely be there because I was so jealous of seeing it all but it was also like not just jealous of like wow like mad jealous like jealous like happy jealous like seeing those spaces being created for people um and just seeing all the joy in that space like really made me happy and that's why I was jealous um just seeing that was like beautiful um and I think it's just important to make people feel welcome and the fact that you guys do both digital and in person um makes it way more inclusive um and I think people often forget about the digital part and how digital activism is still a thing and is still very crucial to get people involved, um, especially either people who might not have been involved before, live in different areas of the world or have a disability. It's it's so crucial and important. Yeah. So Absolutely. Yeah. Um, and kind of switching gears a little bit to talk about COP27. Um So I saw that Time for Better hosted the Hope House, and I would love to hear a little bit about that. And, you know, the events that you hosted were focused on building hopeful futures, centering indigenous knowledge and wisdom, and sharing knowledge across cultures. And I think sometimes people often forget about the importance of just talking with others and sharing this love, hope, joy um, as tools for creating a better future. So I was wondering if you could share a little bit about these events and how the discussions and joy held in these spaces help create room for a better future.
1: Yeah, um, absolutely. So I think often when people think about COP27 or think about climate conferences, the images that come to mind are sterile conference spaces, people literally not having food or a meal the entire day. Um, everybody's walking around in suits and uncomfortable rushing to the next event, sitting down, listening, rushing to the event after. So it's not really a space for um, cross collaboration and it's a really rushed space. It's a space that doesn't often take care of people. It's a space that often doesn't center the voices of people that are on the front lines of the climate crisis. Um, And Also, there are instances where you have people that are um, really frustrated with the climate crisis and reaching out and responding and saying, hey, listen to us, we have this problem, and you have people that are not listening that are focusing on other things. So Sierra Quidiquit, who's the founder of Time for Better, went to COP26 in Glasgow. She kind of noticed this pattern that there isn't a lot of communication happening in these spaces. So what she did is she founded this um, Hope House project by Time for Better. And it's a space outside of the Blue Zone. Blue Zone is where all the negotiations happen. It's where all those like high level politicians are and outside of the Green Zone, which is open to the public. And she created a side event series and we held the Hope House at this. Villa that was along the coastline of the Red Sea. There was like a coral reef right next by that you could walk down to. And we hosted all different types of creative events. So one of the events would involve taking members of the Climate Pledge out to a scuba dive experience where they could see the wonderful fish that exist in the Red Sea so that they could remind themselves what they're working towards. And we partnered with a local environmental nonprofit um, to make sure that it was sustainable and safe. Another event that we had was uh, partnered with Good Meat. And Good Meat is a lab-grown meat company. And we hosted a white glove service dinner with lab-grown chicken meat. We had a barbecue stand and um, yeah, People had chicken skin that was, yeah, not really from a chicken. Um, And then six months later, um, Good Meat got USDA and um, FDA approval from um, the U.S. government. And so really cool change-making things can come from these moments. But what I thought was really impactful were spaces where you saw that conversations weren't typically centered or these are moments that... um, Voices aren't typically centered at COP, where we had a uh, building bridges event. People from all across the political spectrum, from the right and left, sitting down and having a meal together and then taking a selfie and talking about how they're friends and they're going to work together after this and just building network connections that don't have to exist in this like really rushed framework, but exists on a, a framework that they were being cared for. We provided, yeah, just a nourishing moment for them. Um, and then my favorite event was we had uh, Indigenous Women Leadership Panel, and it was in front of a like a body of water pool and we had a water blessing to start off the event and it was just a whole room of women and at the stage was just all these powerhouse indigenous women talking about care for Mother earth. you could see all the women in the audience and they're all sitting down on poofs or carpets and had a plate of food in front of them and they were just yeah learning and um, it candle lit and beautiful so. Yeah, there's just different creative events that we did during COP27 that I feel like really left a positive impact on people and um, brought us to our current activation, which we're doing in COP28. Another hope cast
0: Yeah, I'm definitely gonna have a question about COP28, um, but you know, I think everything you talked about right now is like seeing what we're protecting is so important. That's something that I like love and like live by because even like living in an apartment, I'm like okay, I need nature. Like I want to go outside, but I live in a city. So finding time to just go out and finding those green spaces is so important. And to remember like, this is, and it's also a privilege to live near green spaces, but being out there and remembering why we're doing this and what we're protecting. Like, even if you just see like a tree (laughs) and you're like, okay, that's what I'm protecting.
1: Right. And it's like, sometimes top has like, greenery inside the space but yeah I attended COP25 in Madrid Spain and they had lemon trees to kind of like give the ambiance of nature but by the end of the two weeks nobody was taking care of the trees and they just died it was (laughs) so depressing um so yeah I feel like our space like it was just covered in flowers and nature and you could see the ocean while you're listening to the panelists and just yeah, having that reminder that we are a part of this world makes you care about it more, makes your actions that much more impactful because you understand that like we're all on this yeah, beautiful planet together and we all need to do our best to make life possible for future generations to come.
0: Yeah. Yeah, it's so important. And I feel like for the lemon tree thing, I think that's like a metaphor. Of like, okay, this is what it the was. world leaders. <laughs> Like world leaders didn't do anything at COP25. <laughs> so that's like a metaphor. It was a
1: very sad metaphor. I was like, wow, this is really real right now. Yeah.
0: But then you created an event that changed that. So that's really great that the, your organization is able to do that um, and bring that to people and make it accessible to people um, and centering voices that aren't typically heard in COP in the COP space um, and making sure that people do hear them and are centering um. The voices that everyone matters but the voices that aren't getting heard also matter a lot (laughs) um they're the ones who are holding this wisdom and the knowledge that we need to progress out of the current climate catastrophe that we're in um so yeah great to hear about those events and so now talking about cop 28 um as that quickly approaches what is time for better gearing up for in this year's hope house
1: yes so Pretty much right after Climate Week ended, uh, COP28 production ramped up very quickly for us. Um, but we've been planning this activation since May of this year. Um, but basically, we're creating another Hope House. And this um, event series is going to be held in Alserkal, which is Dubai's most beloved arts and cultural district. And we're situated right next to a couple other creative agencies and hubs of knowledge and community and collaboration, including Goals House. And we are setting out to just making a space for change makers to come and meet and have um, wellness. We're going to have a wellness room for people to have a moment to take care of themselves or have, um, yeah, just. Nice sound baths and just making sure that people are taking care of themselves upstairs and then downstairs of our Hope house will be kind of just a home for people to put together panels and discussions and workshops, which will add to the conversation around COP in a really creative way. And we're taking inspiration from the topics that will be held at COP28 and putting together unique programming to go along with that, including oceans and stocktake and gender and climate and yeah, assembling all of our events right now. But um, yeah, the whole mission is just to offer a space of creativity and joy in the climate movement.
0: Yeah, I was just listening to an episode of Outrage and Optimism, which is another podcast that I love to listen to. Um, I think people forget that podcasters listen and support other podcasts, yes, yes. <laughs> but I love, I love that,
1: that podcast.
0: podcast. Yeah, it's amazing. And they were talking about remembering to like take care of yourself and things like that. And I just think it's so important, like talking about wellness and remembering that when you're at these spaces, that it is so important to take care of yourself. I also heard from people who attended cop 27 last year. Like they were just saying like, Oh, I was so drained. And like, I just felt like I needed like a month to just like sleep and relax. And I think like creating that space is so important. Um, just and creating that creativity is also important. And they also talked about that on outrage and optimism, um, how creativity is, is crucial and needed to get us out of these spaces. Um, so yeah, the bad spaces that we're in, not good. <laughs> we want good spaces. We don't Absolutely. want the bad. <laughs> um, yeah,
1: yeah. Because this work is really hard, and what we're asking of governments, what we're asking of negotiators, what we're asking at people at all sectors is, um, it's a big ask. It's a big ask to change the, the course of power headed right now, and it's going to take a lot of teamwork. And at Time for Better, this is something that the CEO and founder, Sierra, says all the time, But we can only do do be as well as we are well and do as well as we are well. So, um, yeah, if we are not taking care of ourselves actively, we can't expect that we can show up for the earth fully or our community fully. So wellness is definitely a core pillar of, of who we are and what we try to do. I love
0: that. That's amazing. And thank you for adding that little touch in there. That was, <laughs> I love that. Um, so what is something that you are hoping comes out of COP28?
1: Yeah, big question, because this is the first global stock take COP. So this is the first time that nations are going to sit down and decide of how, how we are coming through and progressing on the Paris Agreement. So um, definitely a little nervous on that front, but something that I really try to remember and so glad that you brought up um, Outrage and Optimist podcast because Christiana Figueres is a really major figure and she um, just really sees a lot of climate optimism and we look up to her so much as well. Um, And something that I think she really exemplifies is that while... um, there is reason to be concerned about the climate crisis. There is also valid scientific reasons to have hope, and I think that when you have a summer like we did have, where it was the hottest summer on record since 1880, um, that becomes really hard. But then you look at how we're progressing on renewables, or you look at the youth climate movement, and you see how all of those. Solutions are really radiating, radiating out and people are really, yeah, making a difference. So I think that, yeah, I'm not really sure what's going to come out of COP yet. Um, I think that that will become more and more clear as the weeks lead up. But what I do know is that um, when we take care of our community, which I hope that we will at this upcoming event series, as this, yeah topic of wellness becomes more and more important. Um I think that we'll be able to pull together something really beautiful and I have hope on that.
0: Yeah, I lo- and I love that quote that you brought up from Christiana I think it's just like, you know, as someone who is hopeful as well, I also experience that like doomism and like I think we all do. We all experience it in this space even if we're the most hopeful people, um there is that sense of doom a little bit, but we also have so much community and when i look at my community and like the community around us i see that i don't i have hope all i have is hope and i'm like we we really do have this and creating like again the spaces that you are um and time for better is creating um are so crucial to remember that we all are in this together in a good way like we are organizing together and creating this world we're not waiting for people to do it for us we're doing it um, and I think that's yeah. so important, like the youth movement and just in the indigenous movement and all these other movements. Um, we really are coming together. Um, and I love to see that. Like we saw that at um, the march with 75,000 people there, you know, yes. people from everywhere are coming in and coming together. And that's for one thing, one that, what was it like right. the first time they agreed on every like one thing just to end fossil fuel yeah like...
1: a single message I like just got chills yeah it's, it's incredible the people power is just absolutely phenomenal in this movement yeah truly incredible and one thing that I would also like to add that I'm really excited about um COP28 and just time for better as well um that I didn't mention with the Earth Disco that we had is that we just launched our philanthropic initiative with Time for Better, and we're directly funding youth and Indigenous and underrepresented climate activists to be able to come to spaces like COP28. And we have just funded two youth activists to go, Priscilla and Kevin and um yeah we just want to make it possible to access these spaces that are really hard to access like cop is not um not an inexpensive to go travel to and also to meaningfully participate at but yeah as you have just said like people have power and if you meaningfully um, allow people to participate and be a part of this process of creating solutions especially youth and indigenous and underrepresented climate activists you can create real change
0: yeah yeah no i love that and that's i saw that on your instagram and i was like oh my gosh that's amazing like it's so true like it's so inaccessible to get to some of these um spaces like cop um it's just i remember last year's one i was like looking at flights and it was like <laughs> A th- like over a thousand dollars, and I was like, mm.
1: <laughs> nope, yeah, yeah, and I experienced this as well. Like, my um college, the College of Saint Benedict in Minnesota, so I am right next door to North Dakota, but um, yeah, my college was able to support me to attend and then also support me to like help give workshops and media training after so that's something that we're really hoping to do with the fund as well because it's amazing to go it's amazing to participate but then um, because so many people cannot go then um, it should be that people should have access to understand what's happening on the ground so we're hoping to support that aspect as well
0: yeah, and that's also so important because as someone, I only attended COP fifteen, which was the one for biological diversity in Canada, because it was like six hours away, and there was a bus that takes you right up, which was pretty amazing. So it can take public transport. <laughs> um, yes, but I was just like thinking about like how I didn't really know about cops and what they were, even as someone who has I just got my master's and I did not know what cops were until last year, and. It's kind of been a huge learning curve for me, like trying to figure out even being in this space. And I'm like embarrassed to say I didn't know it, but at the same time, we all have different parts of the climate movement and being able to still understand what it is and making that information accessible, um, to just have a basic level. We don't need to all be, we don't all need to be there and we don't all need to, you know, know every little nitty gritty detail. We just need to know, you know, basics. Okay. This happened. What we need to do next is. The important thing like what are the next steps um so thank you for bringing that up and i would also like to just switch gears a little bit if that's okay with you to talk about you know your work um in storytelling and i think that's always something i love to talk about and talking about it before you know just being able to see nature and be a part of nature and that's what storytelling and documentaries all do so how do you use storytelling and climate change communication in your own work and can you tell us a little bit about the kind of work that you've done within that space including your documentaries which are I commend you for that's so amazing and congrats for those
1: thank you yeah thank you so much for this question so I grew up in Colorado and I had the Rocky Mountains as a backdrop to my entire life and ever since I was a kindergartner, I've been communicating about the environment. I organized a bat assembly for my uh, kindergarten class so that they could have empathy towards these little flittering things. Um, and I yeah, got involved in creating a green club for my middle school and was really involved in sustainability all throughout high school and researching biodiversity. In my AP environmental course um, in high school, um, my teacher told me climate change was not real. And even if it was real, it's definitely not caused by humans. So I grew up in an area that was pretty heavily invested in fracking. And I was surrounded by people that had a lot of doubts about climate change. So when I went to college and had my intro to Environmental 150 course, because that was Environmental Studies and Peace Studies, um, I was absolutely shocked to learn about the climate crisis. And I had a lot of internal turmoil about understanding the data, um, especially as it conflicted with a lot of the things that I learned when I was younger. Um, And the data, of course, was important, and it was really impactful to understand, yeah, climate data on the Keeling Curve, learn about ice core dating, but what really didn't um, solidify about the climate movement or about climate change, um, it wasn't really clear to me until I heard about the stories on the front lines of the of the climate movement, people that were watching their houses disappear, people that were experiencing unprecedented natural disasters, people that were in um, communities that were really extractive based and having long term health impacts, people that were having trouble breathing because of air pollution. Um, and this is what really like sparked a Fire with me with climate storytelling, because I think that this is such an impactful way to reach people because um, while I think the Yale program on climate change communication has over 50% of people understand that climate change is happening and that it's human cause, there's still that other 50% that um, don't understand. And so storytelling can really be a really great platform for people to learn about the climate movement and in college at the College of St. Benedict's and St. John's University I got involved with a student-run documentary group and we had a series of four different kind of documentary projects throughout the four years of me attending school there and I learned how to create documentaries from an ethical lens and really working with communities to Um, help support in telling um, stories from their perspective and making sure that things are done as ethically as possible and um, yeah I think film is really great impactful way to, to reach people they say that a picture is worth a thousand words and I don't even know what a moving picture would be millions I don't know um, and so I went into graduate school right after graduating college, um, and I attended the Yale School of Environment master's program. And I studied environmental management with an emphasis on climate science and solutions. And my goal while I was there was to create a documentary. And well, while I could have made a documentary about anything, and I had a lot of ideas. Um, I was inspired by a recent trip to Denmark to retain my Danish dual citizenship, where I met this beautiful seed saver who had been saving seeds for um, yeah her whole life and just yeah creating this amazing amount of seed diversity and understanding the relationship to um, yeah seed diversity to resilience in crops, response to climate change. Um, I became really passionate about how to make this topic as um, interesting and eye-catching as possible. So I created a documentary that reflected not only my passions about climate change, but my cultural heritage as well. And yeah, I've been traveling around and showing my documentary to different groups, including garden clubs or heritage clubs. And these are people that may not always think about the relationship of their work to climate change, but this documentary has been a great platform to have those initial conversations in a non-threatening way.
0: Yeah, I would love to hear a little bit about like global seed diversity. You know, I've never heard, I mean, I've heard of it, but I've never like learned about it. It's just been like something I like heard about. Um, so I don't know if you're comfortable, but if you want to like just share a little bit about it, I'd love to hear it. And I'm sure people would love to hear it as well.
1: Yes. Um, so we have lost about 75% of our seed diversity since the 1900s, and this is largely due to big ag coming in with huge uh, chemical fertilizers and these um, yeah monoculture systems that we see today. Um, and yeah, just getting rid of a lot of seed diversity. And one of the ways that they did this was criminalizing seed exchanges. So if I wanted to give Taylor, our lovely host, a seed, um, just because I had a pea and it was so good. It was like the most fresh, green, um, beautiful little pea pod that you ever did see. And I was like, oh, you need to try this in your in your garden meals, then um, that would literally be illegal in Denmark from 1987 up until 2014. That's crazy that that is criminalized. That and that's not even the only country that that's criminalized in. And many countries still have like pretty strict laws on seed exchanges. And of course, it's important to protect our native species and our indigenous species and you have to be careful with invasive species as well and i'm not going to pretend that that's not a problem but um, when you look around um, places like minnesota or north dakota or colorado in these big agricultural areas where you see one crop from for miles and you think about problems like how uh, we have lost, almost lost bananas in, in this world. Like we almost lost the banana um, in 1950 because there was a huge pest that just wiped out bananas. So we had to create a whole new banana. Um, if you think of problems like that, and you think of corn, um, what's going to happen when the next super pest species or the, the next um, super parasite or bacteria comes up and gets resurfaced by climate change um, and our crop systems are already suffering because of climate change, like droughts and disasters, um, that's not a very resilient system. And there's things that can be done to change that, which is introducing seed diversity and introducing multi-species fields where you can be more resilient and mimic more of a biodiverse area. So there's things that we can do. And that starts with something as simple as the seed.
0: I love all that. And I can definitely attest that North Dakota is a lot of one, <laughs> one crop. I can attest to that. It's you go outside of any yeah. city and it's just like, I drove across the state two weeks ago and with my my roommate and it was just like corn. <laughs> I was
1: like, yeah. And oh that's terrifying. That's terrifying.
0: Yeah. And I did not know about the banana like crisis issue. I will definitely have to research that. That is insanity. That's crazy. Yeah.
1: Oh my God. Yeah. And it just would be a shame to lose like food is such an important part of our culture, a part of our cultures. And if we lose um, species like that, that can have a huge impact on how we function in this world. So. Yeah, I feel like people should definitely give a second look at seeds and everything. And it's really actually um, kind of simple to get started with supporting seed diversity. You can go to your local library and often they will have a seed library set aside and you can go see what heirloom species, non-GMO species are in your area
0: Oh, okay. I'm definitely going to have to do that. I did not know any of this. This is thank you so much for this. I'm so glad I asked that question. Follow up because that's it. so where can people watch and support your documentary? Is it
1: available online? Yes, it's on YouTube. And yeah, my channel is just Charlie Frisk. So they'll be able to look it up.
0: Perfect. Well, I'll also, for anyone listening, I'll link it in the description so you can easily just click it and find it. Because um, I think that's, I'm going to watch it after this. I'm so excited to watch it. Um, that's so that's so amazing. But also, you know, going back to what you were talking about, your story of why you got into this and how you got into this, that is such a jump scare that your AP class said climate change isn't real and that humans aren't causing it. But like, I also feel that in some respects, like that never, I didn't have that experience. I also never was in AP. So, so that was really good. For you, i APs were too much for me, um, but all I learned about in my i think I forget what it was earth science, I think it was called um we just like learned that like recycling is important, the earth is heating up the like, global warming, the earth is heating up, but that's not really gonna impact us, and recycle and we'll be fine., I was like, nice. hmm, that seems a little hmm. weird for me, but I guess I'll have to learn more about that outside of school. But again, like just making sure that youth have access to this type of education and not just youth, like everybody, but especially youth when they're going through schools, you know, learn some people don't want to learn more. So when they see, okay, climate change isn't real by their AP professor, they believe that. Um, and not that people I didn't mean that people don't want to learn. It's just that people hear that and they say, okay, that's it. My my teachers are right. Like they are the people who have to be right, right? Like and yeah. they hear that and they keep that ideal for, for either their whole lives or until somebody else changes it with No, they were wrong. Like <laughs> they were really wrong. Right. Climate change is really They're real. really
1: wrong. They were really doing you wrong. Yeah, I feel like on the the very least is that climate change is happening and that it's human caused, But yeah, something that we're seeing a lot in the climate movement is when you tell people that climate change is happening and that it's human cause, and you end at a period, and uh, you don't really show people the solutions or the hope that's in this movement. That makes people really anxious, or it just turns people off. And then you have somebody that knows about what's happening, but that is apathetic, and that is a. a Yeah, that's a huge population that is not activated in the climate movement. They don't know what to do because it's a really scary problem. I know that one of the activists that's out of UC Berkeley, her name is Sage. She has rewritten rewritten her college Yeah platform of speaking on environmental studies and climate studies to have this lens of hope and optimism and solutions. So I think that there is work that's being done and I think that there's more work that's be, that should be done and this is something that Time for Better is really passionate about is to educate people on what's happening but then to have some kind of um, yeah, hope and optimism aspect of it that people can get activated and, um, take action in their local and global communities.
0: Yeah. I've also like seen that, that when people, you know, we can teach them about the problem or just tell them about the problem like say, Hey, this is what's going on. And then when we don't either provide this sense of hope, like, Hey, we can actually fix this. Here's how, you know, we don't need a roadmap of exactly, because there is no roadmap of exactly how we're going to fix this, but just here's some people you can support, you know, you can, support these people who are doing, trying to make change and making change on this different level. Cause there's so many ways to make change. And, um, I think that's also something that like gets me anxious. <laughs> so it's like, okay, yes. finding what I need to do and I want to do. And I just did a YouTube podcast episode about that. Like just find, like figuring out like what you want to do. And, um, I think it's Dr. Ayana Elizabeth Johnson, who has her Venn diagram. I think that's so important yes. as well. Like such a great resource. So anyone listening i will also link her instagram handle that you can go follow and look at the venn diagram and try to figure it out yourself too because um, that's so important like figuring out what you want to do um and all of these different attending events um on, online or in person for with time for better um and going to all other types of events you know you can you can see what you like and, enjoy and try to figure out where you fit in in the climate space because there's room for everybody there really is um, yes
1: absolutely and we need everybody
0: yes that's also yes (laughs) there's room for everybody and we need everybody that is definitely yes (laughs) um so I was also just one last question to wrap it up is what makes you hopeful in the climate movement I love to hear um you know just a raw thought of what what you think of that and what what brings you hope
1: that's a very good question um I think what brings me the most amount of hope in this movement is stories of people that are doing the work that is aligned with their passions and talents and hopes and aspirations for what a better future can look like, because that's really inspiring. So I would encourage Anybody that yeah needs extra hope about the movements to of course get plugged in and join your local initiatives to make sure that the fossil fuels are getting phased out. Um, But then when you're feeling low and you want hope and inspiration in your life, I think that turning to stories of where people are making change in their communities can be a huge source of inspiration and um solace for your heart and being and everything. So I would recommend stories. And I'm of course particular to documentaries, but there's so much other forms of stories out there like climate fiction or magazines like The Orion or Atmos or anything like this. Like there's so many stories out there because the climate touches every part of our lives. So yeah, lots of things out there to consume and get inspired by.
0: Yeah. And you also forgot time for better. And time for better. (laughs) Of course, come to us, get some inspiration and hope. (laughs) Yes, a hundred percent. So I will also, for anyone listening, um, tag and put all the handles down below in the description. So feel free to go check them out, follow and follow along on all their events and support, share however you can. But yeah, thank you thank so you. much for joining the podcast. It really has been a very insightful and amazing and intellectual conversation. Um, so thank you. Yeah.
1: Thank you so much for having me, Taylor. Thank
0: you all so much for listening to another episode of The Hopeful Environmentalist. Make sure that you follow us on our Geneva, and or our Discord, where we have many discussions such as climate opportunities, how to stay hopeful, hopeful news, making climate friends, and just a lot of collaboration. So I really implore you to come on and join us because it's really fun and the more people, the better. And we also have a YouTube now, so if you are interested in watching the podcast episodes, feel free to go check us out. Um, You can find that in the link in our Instagram bio, in our link tree. It'll take you right there. And if you're interested in any of the resources discussed in the bio, like following Time for Better, Charlie's documentary, please check out the description of the podcast and check out those resources. They're all linked there for you. Um, And I really, really encourage you to go check them out. Again, thank you so much for listening to another episode of the Hopeful Environmentalist and always remember to stay hopeful and create positive change.